For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo-encabulator. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? What, what, what do I say? I said, welcome to the Mechanical Advantage Podcast. This is Nick Mitchells and Kendall Samuel. Okay. This is older, We're digging it out of the grave, but I think you'll enjoy it. The title is, hey guys, please help. My mods have gone wrong. Hey guys, I've got a 98 1.8 liter turbo. This is on an Audi forum, literally called audiforums.com. Hey guys, I've got a, one po- a 98 1.8 turbo. I've had a KO4 and a chip for a while and wanted to get some more performance. I was recommended to port and polish the intake and exhaust. We found out they used abrasive material to do it like pretty sand. So I got with my friend who tunes Hondas and we decided to try it ourselves. We got a bag of sandblasting sand and hooked it up to the intake of the started car. We had to hold the gas so it would run. He wanted to let the engine suck the sand through the intake so it would port it out and then push it out the exhaust where it would port the exhaust manifold. (laughs) I was worried that it might cause problems, but he figured it'd be okay as long as we didn't get it into boost so it wouldn't suck through the turbo. After running the car and letting it suck suck in the sand, we got halfway through a 25-pound bag, and the check engine light was on, and the engine was bucking and kicking and sounding really weird. We stopped and hooked the car back up to normal and uh, and removed the sand supply. We tried to start it again, and it was really hard. Once we started it, it couldn't idle, and it kept making weird noises. We took it out and drove it and started to make scraping and knocking noises. Help! Can anyone tell me what to do? My buddy only does Hondas, so he's not sure about what has gone wrong with the Audi. So he's pouring polish the Honda that way. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the most terrifying part. This is the difference. Hondas can take, they run on anything. They run on sand, they run on water, whatever you throw at them, they just keep going. The best thing is the first comment. Let me get this straight. You suck sand directly into your engine and you thought it would help anything? (laughs) Are are you effing? I can't even say half the words. This is what the internet has to offer. The bucking is the engine morphing into some beast mode. Okay. The engine's going into beast mode. That's why it's just bucking. After it gets all of its bucking done, it will be a force to be reckoned with. Probably. It's got to get all of the sand out and then it turns into like some like monster of an engine (laughs) and then it's going to need some like higher octane fuel and i mean that's that's a nine second car it's gonna have to run jet fuel all that one of the comments is see here's the problem you did it all wrong you have to do the fuel system sandblasting treatment first 25 pounds in the gas tank then 25 pounds (laughs) through the intake duh (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking we should go and start figuring out how to brew fruit to make alcohol and then we can start a like a still just solely for making E85. Okay, so we're I live near apple country. You're saying we're going to start an apple orchard. 
And no, then no, no. we're gonna we're gonna get their waste apples and convert them into alcohol. They'll sell it to us for like nothing. We're gonna do them a service by taking the apples off of their order. They pay us to take their apples. They, they pay us to take the apples. We then convert it into alcohol and sell it. Okay. And I think we might we should pose this as a green uh, alternative for emissions and then say that we are helping the environment. We're reproducing the apples into a sustainable energy source. Okay, so how many drinks did you have when you came up with this plan? Ooh, it came, it was probably a few drinks in <laughs> on that plan. That was, but that's a good plan, isn't it? I, I, I mean, you gotta. If you went to all the produce stands and said, hey, I'll take all your rotten fruit for free, and you just made alcohol off of it, and then you sold it to people for race gas, you'd probably be all right. And no one, not too many, there's not too many vendors for, if you were to also be able to get a like 100 octane to mix it with, you'd probably have like the only 100 octane blend 85 out there. Because reality goes, you don't even know what the hell you're getting out of the pump. If we can make a quality product that other people aren't doing, that would probably be a benefit. I think VP does have one. Yeah, and Ignite has one. But what's our name going to be? Mechanical Advanced Ignition. <laughs> I, I was thinking, like, you got to play off the fruit. It's got to be in the name. The fruits of your labor. That's going to be our slogan. We need the name to go with it now. I don't know, because I was, I was kind of going with, like, trash fruit, so I don't really have a good answer after that. <laughs> That's the name, trash fruit. Trash fruit raised gas. <laughs> Just get it. it. It's the black market gas. That all the, and we sponsor the, like, underground street race guys, and they, like, don't want to talk about it, but that's part of the sponsorship. Everyone wants to know why are they faster. And they won't say, and then the word gets out. They're on the secret race fuel. It's called trash gas. That could that might actually work. Who knows? That is kind of good branding. We could use the fruits out of all the cookout milkshakes that I use. They, yes, exactly. What they don't put into a milkshake, we can take from them. I'm pretty sure they probably don't have a. No, I'm pretty sure they put everything, they put everything in there. Maybe the banana um, peels. We're like Doc Brown. We're doing like the infusion thing that he like threw banana pills and da 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 and they went back to the future you're, you're too i know young. the movie you're not that much older i think it was the it was like i don't know i don't remember what it was it was the fusion infusion thing they like flipped it up and blah blah, blah threw some banana pills in that's how i feel like you operated the the grand prix like it ran out of coolant just put some banana peels in there yeah it was exactly how i did that thing it just needs a, some sort of media to pass around the engine. Dude, that was the best car ever. I don't know, like, you can't rag on the Grand Prix. That thing's probably still running. It's probably turbocharged now. It's probably built, yeah. You probably flipped out the head gasket. He's like, dude, this thing's great. Let's go. But, like, going back to the Audi thread. I still don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think we should try it. The only way to know... <sighs> I feel like we need. I think we should use diamond, though. I think sand is a, is the mistake. You want to port your or uh, bore your cylinder out at the same time. 
little diamond grit in there. Oh, that's a good one. It kind of made my night. What do you have to be like? How much power, more power do you think you were going to make on the sand? Well, technically, you probably like, did. You probably what's did. the result? The sand takes up uh, cylinder volume, so his compression went through the roof for at least a brief second. It's like method it, water injection. This it actually true. raises your compression a little bit. Any water that doesn't vaporize into my, yeah. like vapor, yeah, he just had sand. Probably legitimately did. His valves weren't closing. That's why it was bucking because it was just pinning sand particles into the seat and then never resealed because it just dented the shit out of the valves. Kind of makes me wonder though. Like, had you just fed like a, a little bit of grains in, would it have like slowly chipped away and made it smooth? Just like a few grains, I, just I, slowly. You need like a a control solenoid. It only does it at wide open throttle. Yeah, just like you have to do it in boots. That's what it really went wrong. I don't know. See, this is a question for the turbo guys. We're gonna save this go. for That's the board what it was. and they'll they'll discuss it. You guys, I guess start with with Kurt, as well as if you guys have intertwined at any point in the process of developing aftermarket turbos. Where did it all begin? Uh, yeah, so I'm Kurt Henderson. Uh, started here when I was a, a baby. I started working here when I was 18, uh, working on the assembly line. So literally building, you know, hundreds of turbos a day with uh, several guys on an assembly line working in a particular station, right? So uh, I pretty much uh, had as much fun as I could there and, and actually ended up uh, landing a job in our technical center. So I uh, started testing turbochargers and, uh, you know, our gas stands, engine cells, special testing, lots of different aspects in the testing world. Yeah. Wait, what's a gas, what's a gas stand? Yeah, a gas stand is a, uh, it's basically a hot gas burner that runs the turbocharger, right? It runs it hot and it has all of the, uh, all of the instrumentation included in the, in the gas stand itself, right? So any of the uh, compressor map that you see, for example, that's where that data is collected. Nice. Okay, cool. So it's like a, a simulated engine without the pulsing yeah. of the cylinder. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that. So yeah, we, you know, any development work that we do, uh, all of that is run across the gas stand, right? That's where we performance map a turbocharger. There, uh, you know, there's some durability stuff that's done as well on the gas stands, but uh, for the most part, that's our turbocharger dyno. Probably more fun than uh, than doing all the assemblies all day. Much more fun, yeah. <laughs> Much more fun. Got to test all the stuff and, and break it and do iterations and then come to the final product that yeah. you had to actually deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And I really enjoyed that job. Um, you know, even as I left that job, I was uh, I was I had an opportunity to move into the aftermarket out of the uh, deck center. And was uh, honestly a little reluctant to do that because I loved working in the lab so much. And uh, but luckily, I did. You know, I moved into the aftermarket as a uh, technical sales rep. So when you, what year was that when you moved into? That was in 2006 when I moved into the aftermarket. <clears throat> so yeah, I spent a little over five years out in the lab, and then moved into the aftermarket. So at that point, aftermarket EFR didn't exist at that point, right? Correct. Correct. So aftermarket just consisted of the S series stuff. Or was it termed something else at that point in time? Yeah, you know, for the most part, uh, the aftermarket uh, was and still is, um, you know, replacement components and turbochargers, right? I mean, that's what we do uh, globally. 
right? So there's a lot of customers around the world that uh, need to fix or, and or repair or replace our turbochargers that are, you know, fitted to the OE application. And then the performance side of it, which back then, uh, our performance lineup was Airworks only, right? And that had started before I came into the aftermarket, but it was kind of a separate, uh, not entity, but, you know, a separate name at least for our performance-driven components, right, or turbocharger. So yeah, EFR had not even been considered yet. So, you know, it was, our performance lineup was uh, Porsche units, Audi units, Volkswagen upgrade units, and then yeah, what you consider the S series or 100 series Airworks, uh, S200, 300, 400, 500s. And uh, yeah, it was a very small part of the aftermarket when I first started. And John, so you, you didn't start here from, right? You were at Garrett? Yeah, um, I was at Garrett. Uh, my, my involvement in turbos uh, started about 35 years ago. Um, it was as a, as a kid, before I had my driver's license, we were bench racing uh, with other friends and looking through magazines. And there was this Buick um, that was uh, out there. And my friend said, watch this car. You know, this is something special. And uh, that was it. Was that a Grand National? Yeah. And it was Grand National, but it was pre-intercooler. Uh, so it was 85, 84, 85. That's the advent of fuel injection. Actually, the Grand National got the EFI before the Corvette did. Um, and uh, so that, that kind of piqued my interest in that, that car when it was intercooled. It was the fastest American production car. And it was a V6, a big boxy sedan. I'm like, what in the world's going on here? <laughs> so I, I uh, learned what I could, and uh, it was turbocharged and intercooled. And I um, always had that car in the back of my mind. And I went through school and got a job um, uh, in Los Angeles for a magnetics company working on electromagnetic valve actuators, so camless engines. And a couple of years into that job, um, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, Garrett, down the road, um, they're looking uh, for engineers. And I said, were you trying to get rid of me? You know? <laughs> but uh, I, I went and uh, interviewed and was hired on there in um, their uh, uh, AVNT, their Advanced Variable Nozzle Turbine uh, Program, and some other things. Um, stayed there for a couple of years, and then I got pulled from another company to go work on electromagnetic valves again uh, in the Detroit area. Um, and I did that for five years and then um, things changed with that business and the advanced group that I was working on dissolved and I got moved to a, a components holding company working on self-tapping screws and saving fractions yeah. of a penny per car and uh, totally not what interested me. So um, I uh, placed a call to a good friend of mine who we went to school together, Brock Fraser, and um, told him the situation and asked uh, if they had anything here at Ford Warner. We kept in touch through the years because he's obviously a big turbo, turbo guy too. And um, thankfully they did. And uh, I joined Ford Warner in 2005 in the APPS engineering group. And uh, Wait, what, I worked- What group was that? Application engineering. Okay. <coughs> so, uh, for that, like, well, you're probably about going into it. What, uh, 
what applicate like what applications were you going into? So uh, it's commercial vehicle. So this this plant here in Asheville, they uh, specialize in commercial vehicle. The Caterpillar, John Deere, Mack Volvo, those kinds of um, primarily diesel engines okay. and type of chargers. So that's our that's our customer base, and I was supporting those uh, customers, and I was kind of the voice of Board Warner and the voice of the customer. You know, I would take their request to internal teams here and work on uh, providing solutions, and then um, you know basically support the new products that are are being developed at the manufacturers. So uh, so. That was the time, especially in John Deere days, that was uh, a lot of VTGs, variable turbine geometry. Um, so it's a vein set that's in the turbine stage that helps drive back pressure and drive EGR for emissions. Um, and uh, I was there uh, in that group for a number of years. And then um, they asked me to, to interview candidates for this new position that was being brought up. And it was the new position dealt with um, EFR, engineered for racing, uh, and more specifically, it's to support motorsports groups. Like uh, they had landed the IndyCar contract, and they were looking for a support engineer uh, to support that program. And the more I learned about that that role, I think mm, that sounds really cool. <laughs> and, and I You're up, like, oh, I need, I should probably actually interview for this. Huh? I think I'll hire myself. And, <laughs> and uh, I threw my hat in the ring um, and transferred groups um, to, to work for Brock. Uh, and uh, that, that was Innovation and New Concepts Group. And um, that was in, let's see, 2011. Um, and uh, I joined okay. that group in 2011 and uh, started to do support work for IndyCar and also release work for EFR. Um, and I still do those two roles today. I'm, I'm a support engineer for IndyCar and also some other motorsports uh, programs like IMSA. Um, and uh, I'm the release engineer for, for EFR product. Um, nice. So, so yeah, that's my, my, my quick 35 year Summary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was gonna say. So I think I did a little little reading. Uh, Bob Warner's the like official turbocharger of IndyCar, and the actual Indy 500 trophy is a Borg Warner trophy. That's correct. Yep. And uh, we have we're a partner to the series. I think the the title is official turbocharger partner to the NDT uh, IndyCar series. And um, you're, you're absolutely correct. The Borg Warner Trophy is um, housed at the museum in the Speedway, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And there's a face of every winning driver on that trophy. It's a sterling silver, five foot six tall, uh, I think it's three and a half million dollar trophy. And uh, their name was behind it um, since 1936. That's the, uh, the first year that it, that it uh, uh, was was at the speedway. So that's a long time. Yeah, yeah, that is a long time. And so, they they ran out of bo uh, of boxes to put faces on the trophy because uh, there's a little little face that uh, that gets sculpted and, and added. And so they ran out of spots on the trophy, so they built a base for it and they started filling that up. Base is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, the, the, the current base, I, I tell people, that's my retirement clock. When that thing <laughs> fills up, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so back 
back in 1936, what what products was Ford Warner backing IndyCar with? Um, well, it was it, it wasn't uh, it was a, a corporate sponsorship. Okay. So there was another corporation I've forgotten which one, but they had a. Uh, a trophy in Ford Warner. They ended up being the, the corporate sponsor for the race and brought that in. Some interesting history. Yeah. And uh, one of our founding fathers, uh, Louis Schwitzer, um, who who is the, the man that created Schwitzer uh, Corporation, and uh, you might remember Schwitzer Turbo, um, he served on the committee, on the technical committee at the Speedway. Um, for like 30, 30 some odd years. And uh, so there's a lot of Ford Warner ties back to back to the Speedway. But back in the day, Schwitzer um, uh, provided turbos for the, for the cars. Um, Mario Andretti is, is probably one of the more, more famous ones. He won it in 69 with the Schwitzer turbo. What was one of the more exciting things uh, about working on the IndyCar turbo? Really the day one kind of thing. See, I, I wasn't an IndyCar fan before I started that role. I obviously knew what the Indy 500 was, but I wasn't an avid fan. But going to some of the test sessions um, where it's a brand new car and um, they closed the, the track down and uh, they didn't want any media around and um, it, to, to be there and, and see, the, see the car for the first time and see it take, take the track uh, for the first time, along with the people that developed it, it was it was pretty cool. And just to think that I had just a little piece to do with that whole program, you know, it, it's uh, it, it was a uh, an exciting time. Um, uh, the chassis changed in in 2012. That was the first year that of the of the DW12. Um, Dan Weldon, he was the development. Driver in 2011 during all the validation, and um, he unfortunately passed in a horrible accident at uh, Las Vegas. We lost a really kind, kind guy there. But they dubbed the chassis DW12, and uh, so it was a brand new tub, brand new aero and uh, engine platform, and, and that's when they went to turbos. And um, to be there at the at the onset of that, that was that was something special. And uh, at uh, that V twin turbo V six is is still uh, out there today. Of course, there's different uh, generations of it, but um, in twenty, well, in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, they're gonna change it up to a different engine platform, and, and uh, there, there'll be changes uh, to the turbo at that time too. So it's it's exciting to follow that the development of it and to. To think about a car that can go 235 miles an hour in a circle. I was gonna say you got to see your like product come come to life, and it's like basically one of the fastest yeah, race cars it's out there. Blowing. In reality, do you imagine qualifying speed uh, is right at 230 now at Indianapolis? And, and can't, can't imagine that that that's four lap total average speed. So there's straightaways and turns. Uh, you know, you got to hit all all four laps uh, just perfectly. And they're doing it on like, seven pounds of boost. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ridiculously low. A street car today is yeah, 15, least, 18. Yeah, at least double that. Yeah. We'll definitely get there. One of the first things we wanted to clarify with, with you guys, but we gotta get 
Mr. Brian's intro in here too. So how'd you end up here? So John was talking about Louis Switzer and I was hired when it was actually still Switzer. That might've been Kurt's situation too. We were hired by Switzer and we saw Ford Warner come in and kind of take over. Um, it was a good thing for us. Ford Warner really um, put a lot of money into the business and, and did grow the turbo business, joining KKK, which was the German turbo company and uh, Switzer into Ford Warner turbos. So that was cool to see that happen. I was hired in 1990, so it's my 30th year here at Ford Warner. And I was hired to run a paint line. Uh, we used to also make vibration dampers here, or harmonic balancers, and I was painting those for $7.42 an hour, so that's been a long time ago. But I was very fortunate, I did grow up in this community, so I'm local here, and uh, spent just a few years in manufacturing, really just a few months in assembly, then a very short time in machining, and then moved into manufacturing engineering, had an opportunity to help Board Warner spend some of that money that they were putting into the business. We bought a lot of new equipment, and I was writing purchase orders for two or three million dollars for lathes and milling machines and putting all the software in that to make all that work like it was supposed to. So that was an exciting time for me. It really, you know, from my days as taking machine shop here to local tech school, to you know, very quickly buying you know big pieces of equipment, balancing equipment, machine um, centers here at, at Board Warner was really a cool step up. Uh, but I didn't do that for long either. I moved into manufacturing engineering and uh, quickly after found my way to the tech center as Kurt did. A lot of really cool stuff to do out there. Uh, Kurt, did you ever work on the uh, bursting containment? Yeah, so Kurt actually got to blow them up. I actually was a machinist out there, and I was machining um, different fittings and such to put the, the turbos on the gas stands and the engine stands, as the case may be. But I always enjoyed watching them blow up the turbos every time. I had, to, so, had to blow up three turbos <laughs> to prove containment before you could sell anything. So there's somebody that really enjoys their job every day. For sure. <laughs> I was going to say, so that the bursting containment <laughs> is like an OEM specification, right? That That's you right. need to pass before they're willing to accept your product. Right. Uh, and a lot of our competitors that we go head to head with kind of in the aftermarket don't do that. Yeah. Because they're also not OE suppliers. And yeah, and that's what, uh, what I've heard at least uh, one of the things that people say, you know, you're going to like die if you buy a Chinese turbo. Uh, because a big, not just if it comes apart, they're not balancing them very well. And then when they do come apart, it's going to go through your hood or, you know, well, Kurt may have some to add to this, but I know that we did some bursting containment testing on uh, some units that we bought from China. And while sometimes when we would blow up our compressor covers, there would be a breach, there would be a small breach, you know, where the volute area came together and that's unacceptable. We'd have to go back and find ways to strengthen that. But literally we've done bursting containment on some, Chinese turbos that we swept up the pieces of the compressor <laughs> cover. There were 30 or 40 pieces popped. It just went wow, over yeah, and it's name. all metallurgy. I mean, that material, uh, you can't just make it out of, you know, any aluminum. It's got to have a lot, a lot of mechanical properties, modulus of elasticity. I'm not a metallurgist, so I won't try to go into all those things, but it really has to elongate and absorb all the energy from that wheel and not just shatter. And, and the metallurgy on the covers from China, it just shattered when it hit. So I'm, I'm sure there's some of that in the casting strategy too. Sure. Uh, whether, I mean, the mix of materials, but the, the mix, yeah. they're doing high pressure, low pressure castings and how, how it's flowing in. I'm sure that's all, mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously it's important, the amount of work and engineers. Yeah. 
that are here just yet. Yeah, I mean, you gotta have a, a base of material that'll again, absorb all that energy and not just fracture. So, you know, thermal stability is very important, but also uh, it's gotta be soft enough to where it doesn't just pop and hit everything. So anyway, uh, kind of got off on a tangent there, but I did, I did spend a lot of time in the machine shop. I made all the uh, components of a turbocharger. I got to actually machine wax models that went out and made turbine wheels. Um, and at that time for Board Warner, uh, we didn't have a five axis mill and we were paying another company to machine all our compressor wheels. So I convinced them that we should have our own five axis mill. And I bought a five axis milling machine and again, put the software programs together and things that were required to, uh, to do that machining. And we started machining all of our arrow internally instead of relying on people like NREC concepts to machine that arrow for us because people sign an NDA agreement, but you know, still we know that there's opportunities for that sensitive arrow data to end up in the wrong hands if we're sending it out through the mail. So um, I was pleased with keeping all that internal to Board Warner. And you know, kind of like John said, being the first to do something really cool, and I was the first person to machine a five axis compressor wheel here at Board Warner. So that'll be one of the things I definitely uh, feel good about looking back over my career someday. After the model shop, I moved in 2012 to the aftermarket and took a position similar to what Kurt had where I was technical sales rep or helped all of our distributors with their turbo questions. Uh, since then, I've kind of moved roles again. Seth Temple is our application engineer in the aftermarket and he's answering most of those tech questions today. And I've taken more of an operational role where I handle shipping and all the business side of the aftermarket. So. Not necessarily something I wanted to do, but something I was given. So that's where I'm at today. So out of the three of you, you were in aftermarket first. Yeah, that's right. So did you have any opportunity? Like as you worked into aftermarket, seeing these guys come in, you guys have any good memories of, uh, uh, I don't know, projects you all jointly did together? Well, when I was in the model shop, I remember machining lots of custom hardware that Kurt was sending our way. <laughs> yeah because he was putting our John Deere turbos or our Caterpillar turbos on all these different uh, sport front wheel drive racers cars and uh, doing some pretty awesome things with that. So that was kind of scurrying up the hardware along with the other guys in the lab for mm -hmm. Kurt to go out and was it Brett Rao and big mm -hmm. list of guys who provided turbos to that one sport front wheel drive. Yeah, very early on in the aftermarket, you know, the Airworks uh, brand, we were supporting uh, very heavily in the in the front wheel drive or, or drag racing community. And yeah, we were heavily involved with, uh, like Brian mentioned, Brent Rao and uh, you know, several other programs out there back in the NHRA Sport Compact and Nopi days. And uh, we were, I would say, very successful and you know, enjoyed a lot, of, uh, a lot of good experience and exposure you know, in that market. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, that was, again, all before you know, EFR came about. And was it 08, 09 when EFR came out? Yeah, it was 2010. So it would have been in the design, the early design phase. It would have, I'm guessing it would have existed mm -hmm. here in, in 09. Here's how, here's how I see it happening, honestly. Kurt and all the work that he did there, kind of migrating these turbos over into something that's more recognized as a performance turbo. That If you go back and look at our catalog today, all the SX and what we call SXE are complete derivatives of that work that was done. So that kind of started fleshing out, hey, we can sell performance products and we can do okay with this. So certainly Brock had a lot to do with EFR coming along, but I think the SX and the SXE line being 
that we didn't just, oh yeah, people also use these for performance, but there was a significant amount of units selling into a performance application. It kind of at least laid the groundwork for something like EFR, which was not a product that came along from our other legacy um, CV work, but was absolutely you know engineered and built for the aftermarket. Yeah, you know the, the, the stuff that we were building for Airworks was uh, old from our bin of mm -hmm. you know uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of turbo components pulled from those those bins to you know put together in a combination that worked well for performance. You know, I mean, the turbo uh, itself, I I feel doesn't really care what the what it's attached to, right? I mean, it's, it's doing its job whether it's on a tractor or whether it's on a drag car. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it gave some really good exposure and experience to that part of the market. And, you know, all of us being turbo guys or uh, car guys or, um, you know, knew we could do a little, a little bit better, right? Or we could do a lot better. And that was, uh, you know, kind of the envision, our vision of uh, EFR, you know, with Brock and uh, you know, customers knowing what we could do, you know, what current technology uh, would allow us to do and how we could really come out with a product that would just really blow the market away. Was there ever like a car platform that spurred you to, to kind of like start building more into the performance aftermarket than kind of just pandering to like maybe a diesel pull off or something like that? So I know a lot of people, they'd be buying turbos that were designed for diesels, putting it on their Mustang and, and going out and running it. But then at some point, Turbos are now very much more gas-oriented, designed to be a lot more efficient than what they were in, you know, back when people were starting. Was there like a platform that that got people going into the aftermarket and really started getting BorgWarner moving into that direction, or was it from the fact that you started doing IndyCar, getting into the performance aspect, and moved from the racing division out to aftermarket? Yeah, I would say that, you know, pretty much uh, any turbocharger, at least until very recently, that was capable of supporting more than, let's say, 300 horsepower, uh, it's born in the diesel market, right? I mean, what engine in the world is uh, large enough to accept the power uh, supporting capability of something that's larger than 300 horsepower? It, it all came from the diesel market, right? I mean, uh, you know, like John mentioned and, and Brian mentioned some of our customers, Caterpillar and Detroit Diesel and, you know, um, you, you name them, these big engines, 12, 13, 16 liter diesel engines. This is where your thousand horsepower capability turbochargers come from. And, you know, the turbocharger in, in very general terms doesn't care what it's living on, really. You know, whether it's a big diesel engine or a high revving two liter gasoline engine. Well, that was... Um one thing that I think is not interpreted well in the aftermarket industry by the general people bolting these to their car to make more power. One of our, the favorite things that uh, even in our last podcast, we, we were mentioning to the tuner, you have people uh, asking how much boost are you running? Like the boost number is, you know, if you make 50 pounds of boost, you're making all of the power in the world, which sure. isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. So that was, that's one thing uh, we kind of say for this podcast is what determines your power? Is it your, your pressure ratio or is it your flow? Is it a combo? How do you guys interpret that in, in sizing a turbo for an application? Right. Yeah. And we get that question, you know, I would say a lot, like, 
like you just mentioned, right? <coughs> and if we just, for example, just take a look at the Airworks series, the 100 series, uh, S200 through S500. If we were to take a look at the compressor maps for that range of uh, turbocharger models, if we only consider pressure, they're all equal, right? You know, I mean, an S200 can make 50 pounds of boost at its maximum operating speed. An S500 can make 50 pounds of boost at its maximum operating speed. So, you know, how can you have a turbocharger that is half the size or even a quarter of the size of another capable of the same pressure? Well, there's that other component that comes in, right? Yeah, the flow. Right, so they'll all create the same amount of pressure, you know, for a given wheel design, for example. Let me let me state that, uh, but all at different flow rates, right? So, 50 pounds on an engine uh, that needs to be properly sized with that turbo to allow the turbocharger to operate there safely, right? So that's why you get this range of turbochargers. So, at least in your opinion, and I, I have my own when I'm building something, would you prefer a car that maybe has a larger turbo can flow more and you run 15 pounds of boost and you're making peak power out at maybe 7,000 RPM, or you put a small turbo that you'd have to, to get the same horsepower, you'd run 30 pounds of it, you're gonna make that power 3,000 RPM sooner. Which way, I mean, and then of course, there's gonna be a happy medium where you go somewhere in between. But there's, I know there's different ways of thinking to make a vehicle last or in different applications. I know that's also a huge factor. Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion on that? I know IndyCar is running very minimal boost, but then you have these tractor pull uh, type uh, builds that are outrageous amounts of boost. Right. Like hundreds, 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 yeah, of PSI. hundreds of PSI. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's a, I guess it's a good question. And it's a question, you know, when I sat in the aftermarket, uh, technical sales rep position that I would ask guys to be honest about, like, what do you want? You know, I mean, what do you really want? If you want to make this peak horsepower number, uh, that's a completely different turbocharger match than something you actually want to drive all the time, possibly if this is a street application, right? So you need to, you need, the customer needs to be uh, honest with what he really wants out of the application. And inevitably they want both. Right. Absolutely. It's our job to convince them that that's really, physically impossible yeah. and then you create a turbo that could possibly do it with the e-turbo yeah right. but that's a different podcast possibly <laughs> um, but anyway with with turbos that we sell through the aftermarket with anything that's not electrified or assisted you're not going to get both those things you're not going to get that maximum dyno horsepower and also good drivability it's always a compromise between the two and i'd say you know you mentioned drag racing or you mentioned um, tractor pulling a lot of times those guys are class limited. So a lot of times we see that not only they're making like crazy power, crazy PSI, they're, they're doing it at an RPM for the turbo that's very detrimental, but they're doing it that way because they're class limited to a certain size and they're trying to make all the power they can for that size turbo. Well, they'd be way better off with a larger turbo that would have the flow characteristics they're looking for. But again, class limited, can't get there. So they're trying to do all they can with this little tiny turbo they've been strapped with. Yeah, that's another really good point of the performance <laughs> market, right? Is what do you what do you want or what do you prefer, and then how do we get you there? And then also, what's allowed? What's allowed, right? I mean, these are all very important aspects that go into matching the turbocharger, right? And each one of those would yield a different result if you were uh, given each application or target uh, individually. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't want to make this sound like a, a plug for our software, but uh, to help answer these kinds of questions, we've got an online matching tool called Matchbot, and uh, you, you enter your engine operating points and it'll plot them on the compressor map, and then you can change out the compressor map and see how they compare from uh, one turbo to another. So it's a, it's a quick way to take a look at, okay, what if I run a, a very large turbo, what kind of efficiencies do I sweep through versus a very small one? So what kind of inputs do you need to use that tool? Uh, you need engine displacement, um, the uh, boost levels that you're running, volumetric efficiency, um, take a swag at how much uh, pressure drop you have across the air filter if you run one, how much back pressure on the exhaust. Um, if you're running an intercooler, uh, how effective it is and how much pressure drop it has. And then um, air-fuel ratio and um, things, things that you can take educated guesses uh, at. And at the bottom of the Matchbot, there are little video tutorials that will walk you through how to fill out. Okay, so if you don't know how to make those educated guesses, you can just use the video tutorial and it'll roughly for a two liter or a five liter. Yeah, you some let, me, let me throw a little bit in there too. I'd say that there are default values for all those characteristics that John just mentioned, and you can really feel free to leave those alone. I tell people if they just want to use the Matchbot at kind of its reduced terms at its lowest level, if you just put your, your um, displacement in, and you put the maximum RPM you plan to turn the engine to, and your boost pressure, it's gonna pretty much tell you if that turbo is within the right size range. I mean, certainly you can go much further. And as John talked about, you can really refine the setup in Matchbot and get you really close to what that turbo is capable of from the lowest RPM operating point to its choke flow or rated speed. Um, but I, I'm surprised we usually take it with us to PRI, to SEMA, to the different shows that we work. And a lot of times people will come up and they either say, I have this engine, I have this turbo, or either I have this engine, I want this turbo, let's tell me if it'll work. And of course I just put it in my spot. And very often it is such a mismatch that this customer is gonna be super dissatisfied with that turbo or anybody else's turbo that he bought that was of similar size to go on that engine. So it, it is really a great tool and I do recommend it to anybody that's buying a turbo because you need to know if this thing's even going to come close to your expectations or your power targets. When you were explaining there was, uh, I think it was at PRI, you mentioned that there was a customer that went from an S369 to the new 372 and he lost power because he had shifted his place in the map and he couldn't mm -hmm. understand why he got the more horsepower capable turbo but didn't make more horsepower. Yeah, and in that case, it's like anything else, you actually need to be operating at the advantage between the 69 and the 72, because if you're still at an operating point that the 69 would achieve, the 69 achieved that quicker than the 72 would. If he moved over to where he was in full choke flow and took advantage of that area that the 72 provides that the 69 won't, it certainly would have been a benefit to him. But being as the smaller turbo that you can choose that will hit your power target is always your best choice. Because if you, you know, choose, you gotta get the biggest one. If you choose time. a bigger turbo and you plan to grow into it, that might save you some money down the road. But it <laughs> is a compromise to that particular power target. Yeah. You're always better off with the smallest turbo that'll do the job. I was gonna say that kind of makes sense why on your 9180, it didn't start waking up until about after 400 horsepower. Like yeah, yeah, it was the same with when I ran the S363. Um, 
back on my Subaru. That was the first Ford Warner I ever ran, the old cast wheel version of the mm -hmm. billet stuff. And on the dyno, my goal was to make 600 wheel. And you know, that's like the, on the dyno I was on, that was roughly gonna be the edge of the range of that turbo. Mm -hmm. This was in Denver as well, at an elevation. Full turbo. With, uh, yeah, I was gonna push it. We were gonna crank that <laughs> thing up. And uh, the guy tuning it, it was in our last podcast, Harvey. And first pull, 13 pounds of boost, made 360 wheel horsepower. Pretty good. We bump it up. We went like to 18 pounds and it made like 385 or something. And it was like, oh my God, we go five pounds and we got like not, not enough. This, the jump wasn't correlating. And when we went from 18 to 19, it was like 10 horsepower. And when we went from 19 to 21, it was like a hundred. It was that we got this small jump and you could then tell that turbo woke up. And that was the, that was when I learned that the little efficiency islands in a compressor map actually matter when, when you're going into it. So I can definitely see that. Yeah, and, and efficiency is thermal efficiency. So the higher the number, the more efficient it is. Well, that, that just means that your charge temperature is cooler. So you, you're able to have a denser charge and uh, potentially run more spark timing and take advantage of it too. Um, so yeah, when we talk efficiency, it's really boils down to the the temperature of the, the air exiting the turbo. That was actually one thing that um, I think is somewhat misguided in the, in the public and the aftermarket industry is, you know, the basics of a turbocharger is you're kind of scavenging some energy out of the exhaust and putting it through a shaft to run a compressor. Um, and then you're compressing that air, you get more air in the cylinder, you can put more fuel in, you can get uh, some more horsepower per combustion cycle. And that goes back in the exhaust and, uh, and then you have more energy to scavenge. So I would like to hear from a professional explanation is if you have that cycle and you're putting more boost into the system and then you combust it and then you have more exhaust energy and you take that exhaust energy and you put it through the shaft to the compressor wheel to make more boost. Why is this not an infinite cycle? Why can we not take a small turbo and just make all the horsepower on the tiniest little turbo. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> wait, aren't you professional? You're supposed to know this. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering how to answer. The internet, so, they, they'll so, tell you okay, exactly. Okay, let's answer this by, by saying, okay, take, let's take wastegating out of it. And, and what wastegating is, is it's a uh, control to, to bleed off some of the exhaust energy to avoid overspeeding. Okay, so let's say, let's take that out of the discussion and say, okay, we're gonna make, we're gonna, we're gonna not allow it to wastegate. Um, so we match a turbo, and there are some engines like this. Uh, it's it's pretty popular on um, on uh, stationary gen sets to have non-wastegated. Yeah, turbos. so so a, a steady state like single RPM application, like yep. a generator. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So let's let's take that for example, and the generator fires up. The turbo uh, is is there. It doesn't have a means to wastegate, and uh, it uh, comes up on boost. And you're driving uh, the, the the exhaust energy coming out of the out of the engine is driving the turbine wheel, which is drawing in fresh air and pressurizing it and feeding it into the engine. Um, why does it not just run on as if it doesn't have a throttle or or, or any control. Well, there's physical limitations to, to, to how much flow 
you can you can squeeze through it. You can um, when you size that turbo to not be wastegated, then you're sizing the turbine flow range to match that of the engine. So it's not um, it doesn't need a wastegate because it doesn't run on and, and continue uh, overspeeding and, and keeps on keep on keep on going. So you'll reach uh, when the engine comes up to speed, you'll reach a point that the, the turbine energy going into the uh, into the exhaust stage and driving the turbine wheel, um, that energy is converted into compressor energy on the on the compressor side to draw engine in, uh, air in and create a boost level, and the system stabilizes. It won't flow any more than it, it's set at. There's an orifice in there. Some of the teaser is the restriction for your drive pressure and your boost pressure balance, and that's as far as it's going. So, yeah. like uh, by drive pressure, you mean back pressure before the uh, turbine yeah. So, as far as like um, using the energy in a turbo, is it the heat or is it the exhaust flow or pressure that is creating the energy? It's yeah. both. Turbine <laughs> expansion ratio. Uh, it both equally, or is one more important than the other? I guess. Um, but to clarify that question, I guess, um, which would be uh, more detrimental, running a, a poorly sized header pipe or, or you know, any exhaust pipe leading to a turbo or running a pipe that's not insulated, you know, like without exhaust wrap if you're in a performance application? Which would you go for first? Which which would I correct first if I have like a super restrictive or a non-wrap? If you're the yeah, if you're the garage builder, cost aside, yeah, uh, what would you optimize for flow or, or try and keep cold temperature? The flow. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I would and, fix and the restriction then, first. Yeah, and and then what that does is it it um, provides the pressure to drive the turbine stage. If you have a ton of back pressure, which is kind of what you're describing, if you have a, a really small uh, turbine inlet restrictions, say maybe your header is really small and uh, <coughs> it's starting to, to build pressure there. Um, that should be corrected before heat transfer. Kind of on the same topic, if you're running a really big exhaust into the turbo, that could, yeah. could reduce spool or, or response, I guess. Um, so is there, is there some happy medium there? Uh, yeah, there, there is. And, and I kind of, kind of relate it to holding your thumb over a garden hose. Um, you, you have the same amount of flow, but you can have, you can change the velocity by, by pinching down on the, on the area that, that it's going out of. So um, you can imagine if you had a turbine wheel in your hand and you're driving with the garden hose and it just, the hose is just dribbling out versus if you give it some velocity, that has a great effect on the speed of the, of the turbo. So you've got to optimize it so that you, you reach that, that happy medium. That's a, actually a really good visual. I'm imagining the turbine wheel not spinning much with a really strong uh, flow, not restricting, and then also not spinning if you restrict it so much that barely any water, it's going really fast, but it's not enough mass to get something moving yeah. in. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to do the visuals because we're on podcast. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when it's doing the in, the exponential loop is there a like speed limit that happens on the physical parts 
eventually? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So if you let's take another scenario, not the non-wastegated, but let's take a typical streetcar um, that uh, you have a wastegate and you want to avoid overboost. Um, bad things happen when you overspeed a turbo. First thing that you'll typically run into on a gasoline engine, especially if it's pump gas, is you'll become knock limited. If you run a, a ton of boost, then the uh, combustion event will be uh, limited by, by the octane of the fuel and, and you'll have knock and you can blow head gaskets and, and other things. But on the turbo side, if you don't control the speed of the turbo, I prefer or compare it to running an engine without a rev limiter. I mean, you wouldn't create an engine and uh, spin it up to the moon and not have any kind of fuel cut or spark cut and just let it run on. Uh, and Don't destroy it. Yeah, yeah, because something's going to happen. Either the valves are going to float and hit the piston or a, a, a connecting rod's going to separate from a piston and, and you know, window the block. And and you would, you would say, well, what a... You wouldn't say what a crappy engine design, you know, it wasn't able to spend them to, to 14,000 RPM on a big block, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So There's rev limiters so, for a reason, huh? Right. And for a turbo, you need a, you need a rev limiter as well, because if you exceed the, the speed of the turbo, um, several things can happen. Uh, the, the rotor group can become unstable, um, meaning that it'll start to gyrate and, uh, move and take up all the clearances and the bearings and then uh, it'll touch the, the end housings. The wheels will touch the end housings, which is typically the first thing that happens. And then thankfully the whole thing slows down. But uh, another thing that could happen if the, the bearing setup was stable to extremely high speeds, you can exceed the, the physical limitations of the materials of the wheels and they'll literally fly apart. And our speed limits on our turbos are uh, about the same speed as a 22 rifle. So a bullet traveling through the air, that's about the speed roughly of the tip of the wheel. So that's pretty dang fast. And uh, there are people that, that take it in excess because they've got the control, right? We don't have spark plugs or fueling that we can cut and limit the speed. We're relying on the wastegates and proper control of the system to keep it within the bounds of the capabilities of the turbo. So that's kind of interesting. Just going back to what you were saying about rotor stability, it almost sounds like the, the natural effects of the rotor spinning too fast are very similar to an engine spinning too fast and the aspect that a lot of engines, their components, like an OEM engine, for instance, you spin it too fast, your oil supply was never designed to go up to that realm and your parts are too heavy at whatever RPM it is that you're exceeding to be supported by the oil film that's being pumped by that oil pump. And at least for me, conceptually in the turbo, you get to a rotor speed where the mass of the parts at that speed are no longer being supported by the oil being pumped in there. And now your oil film isn't... Yeah. The isn't amount of force generated yeah. by that speed is able to overcome the oil the pressure. oil pressure yeah so um no that makes a lot of sense and uh, i've never actually thought about it. i've thought about engines that way you know you want yeah. your connecting rods as light you want to do the billet gun drilled cranks to get mass out and 
That way your oil film can support those components. You can rev them higher and you put a little better oil pump on. So, um, so I know you're known for EFR. So what is EFR special because of the weight of its components or what makes EFR special? Okay, so the EFR uh, was a clean sheet look at what could we bring to the aftermarket that puts our product above the competition for a cost that's reasonable. So we, we looked, and this goes back to Brock, I consider kind of the father of EFR. He and his team took a look at the materials, the shapes and designs and, and different processes in order to, to bring to market a, a turbo that would outperform what's out there uh, and yet still be affordable. So the key, the, there's several key features of EFR that set it apart from the competition. And probably the, the main one is the turbine wheel. The turbine wheel is titanium aluminide, which is otherwise referred to as gamma tie. And it's a blend, a quasi ceramic of titanium and aluminum. And what that allows you to do is create a turbine wheel that's half the weight, half the inertia of a conventional wheel that's high nickel content. So it's kind of like a wheel, a tire and wheel combination. You know, the lighter the rotating the mass, the, the better handling, better response. Um, you've got to spend a spool of turbo up. So the lighter you can make the rotor group, the better. Um, so having that lightweight wheel is, is huge. Um, and it, so if it's this ceramic-esque material, then my assumption would be that would be a phenomenal uh, material to use for really high temperatures, but like a coffee cup, it would be kind of brittle, um, it, it, like a, a atmosphere, normal room temperature. Yeah, this, this tile aluminum is kind of, kind of strange in that if you take it at room temperature, it's at its most fragile state. So you can take um, a tie-out wheel and uh, a pair of, uh, of pliers and uh, at room temperature, if you crank down on it, you can break it by hand. And then somebody hits you with what's left of it. But at operating temp, it's, it's it, not the case, right? The, right, the toughness, if you look at the curves, the toughness increases with temperature. So um, we've, uh, we've seen foreign object damage, in other words, FOD, FOD, um, where things have gone through the turbine wheel, like somebody's dropped an exhaust valve or um, a spark plug tip or a thermocouple tip. And the, the fracture, you would think the, the wheel being the ceramic would completely dust you know, and, and fly apart. Yeah. But uh, we've seen the FOD damage come back and it looks really similar to a, a nickel wheel in that uh, on the leading edge of the inducer where the object came in, there's a bite mark um, that ripped the material right in that area and it left the, the remainder of the wheel uh, intact. Huh. So it's, it's really interesting material. It almost sounds like it acts similar to like a composite where you have the best of two different worlds almost. Um, combined into one, but it's a metal. Yeah, and, and going back to the early IndyCar days, um, you know, okay, think think about the, the the turbine wheel is this fragile egg. You got to protect the egg. You know, when you when you put the turbine housing on, you got to make sure you don't nick it and, and ding it and, and get it get it in there and uh, protect the egg. And then the team mounts it on the car 
and it's a development car and they're still having startup issues and things like that. Um, about, I don't know, 30% of the times when they hit the starter on a cold engine and fired, fired off the car, bang, big flames, like two <laughs> feet come out of, the t- <laughs> out, of, out of the exhaust pipe. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, the wheel, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's stone cold and then you're just throwing a firecracker in the pipe and lighting it, basically. I wish I could say I didn't do that on my own car. <laughs> I've never once thought about uh, that. Yeah, you definitely that. did. Oh, we had one of the guys on my team actually uh, mismatched my coil pack, cylinder one and cylinder three. So it was, it, that was the nastiest combustion I've ever seen. It, it, it survived at every turbo that's ever had. Yeah, and, and we, we hear uh, people doing analog strategies. You know, they want to they do two-step. And, yeah. And things like that and we we recommend um warming the thing up before you before you you bang on it you know get it up to operating town i feel like that's i mean not that's not just the bar yeah. that's all turbos you don't want yeah. that's, that's yeah. any engine actually i was gonna say you shouldn't anti-lag any turbo it's no, not a good no idea. Like but, but i think it is even more important with the fr because i have uh, we talked to some folks who have had wheel failures uh, that happened almost immediately. They got in the car, they were showing out for somebody, and they didn't really give it time to, uh, to thoroughly heat soak. So I'd say I agree with you, it's for all turbos, it's for all engines, but EFR is more susceptible to it, just based on the fact that, like we were talking, its mechanical properties are better once it's got some heat in it, and it is more fragile, more <laughs> fragile than, let's say, an Econel, which would be its counterpart at room temperature. So, um, your, in, in any turbo, your turbine wheel and the shaft that's transferring all that force to the compressor wheel, it's not, that's, you know, as you call it, a shaft and wheel, it's all one piece. Um, but with the Tyal, are you using all the titanium aluminite for the entire unit, are you, or are you mixing and matching? Yeah, so how do, you, how do you mount the titanium aluminite wheel onto the steel shaft? Is it an Inconel shaft and then the tile wheel? Uh, no, it's a it's a mild steel shaft. Okay. So um, in a tile wheel, and um, there's a, a joint on a conventional wheel, you inertia weld it. You spin spin them and, and slam them together, and the friction welds it together. Um, you can't do that with tile. So EFR has a design where there's a threaded stub on the end of the of the casting for the for the wheel. And there's a shoulder that's a, a, a basically a, a pen or a post, and um, that threads into the mild steel shaft, and the shoulder goes into a, a counterbore um, on the shaft, and it and it helps locate it and also pull the joint. And then there's a, a roll pen that gets pressed in, and what that this is all done. Um, I don't want to get too far into the details, but it's all done in a state where things can move around. And um, the pen uh, pushes in, and it doesn't create a shear uh, on the on the post, but it takes up all the slack in the threads. So it, it, it you can imagine so kind of like locks yeah, it. Yeah, on the tip. So it, it pushes on the tip of the of the of the threaded portion, and it shoves everything against one uh, thread layer. Okay, so so now I've given away all of our our, our secrets for how to put a tile wheel on a shaft, but but that's it, it's it's uh, it's that's how we that's how we connect the two. So as you mentioned, you have half the mass by using this alloy, which to clarify, I guess 
That is purely Borg Warner. Um, only Borg the, Warner's the only one in the industry using it. In the aftermarket, that's true. Now there's some OE units. Porsche had a uh, an SUV that had Tyal on it, and then uh, Cadillac ATS V has Tyal on it. I guess that program is no longer in production. But um, it, it was in uh, some special. Uh, yeah, in the OE world, it's, uh, it's been used very sparingly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, was that? But was that when it was used? Was it Borg Warner or no? Oh, no. So, okay. No. So in aftermarket, the only one um, using that alloy is Borg Warner, unless you're talking about Ty Allen, their name of their company, Fast Ford. So Ty they're not using any of that. Just the name. Well, yeah, Tile. T-I-A-L sport that has nothing to do with titanium aluminum. Do they just like the logo? What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't you know. Have to ask Greg. Yeah, I don't know the history of that, but um, I just noticed it uh, reading through the EFR catalog that the titanium aluminum. And if you look at the Tile Sport logo, it's actually capital yes, it's T, like, lowercase I, capital, capital A. A, lowercase L, and that's. That was the first time I tied that together and started questioning it. And, and, and now to make things even more confusing, Tile Sport does a Zona Rotor. Yep. And uh, that's a, a, a aftermarket product line. But that's not a Tile wheel. That's not a titanium aluminite wheel. <laughs> I think it has to do with the periodic table, right? So let's, yeah, let's so just yeah. refer to it as Gamma Tie. Gamma Tie. Now we're gonna, tie. That's right. what, I'm going to open a turbo company and call it Gamma. Oh no! <laughs> so wait, all right. So, so yeah, if I have a standard, so if I start with a standard turbo and I go to an EFR, how much faster will I spool on most applications? Um, that's like asking how long is a is a string, right? So it, it depends, but <laughs> I, typically I would say three to four hundred RPM quicker. So if you if you come up on boost at three thousand RPM, it'd be twenty six hundred. But that kind of range. So I guess more than spool, the what what do you think is affected more by uh, reducing that mass, the spool, or are you decreasing the response time and really getting a better response out of it? You're decreasing the transient response, yeah. the, the transient time. Okay. So so like if you're on a streetcar and from a dead stop, you roll from a stoplight and stab it without power braking or anything, then an EFR equipped car versus a conventional car will come up to boost quicker and, and uh, yeah. yeah. And that's that response, right, is, is what gains you the, uh, the boost response or the spool, as you called it, right? I mean, uh, if you were able to truly compare apples to apples here, let's say if we took an EFR turbocharger and we had fitted it with a ink and L shaft and wheel, and that would be the only way you could truly compare apples to apples, right? I mean, a, a similar size turbo and an EFR turbo of similar size, but of different brands or different uh, aerodynamics are going to respond completely different no matter what. Yep. But yeah, if we could compare just the difference in the shaft and wheel and the, the turbo wheel material, and let's say you put it on an engine brand at quasi steady state, let's say you run it up the lug line very slowly, uh, where the, uh, the turbo came on school how much boost it made for a given RPM at full load or at any load, uh, given being equal, would be identical. Right. Right. Because, you know, there's no change to when the turbocharger would respond in a steady state manner, but it's the, it's the transient response and that reduced inertia that gains you the, the, the upper hand over a heavier wheel. Yeah. So it's the, it's the applications that have tip in, tip out that really benefit from it. If you have 
for example, a drag car. I don't promote, I shouldn't say that. For a drag application, it doesn't make much sense to, to pay for an EFR if you have similar arrow for a less expensive error because you're staging it, bringing it up on boost, and you're negating that low inertia. So, so is that the reason why IndyCar switched to the EFR style turbo versus, say, a journal regular journal bearing? Because um, they, they're doing a lot of road racing, so they're, they're in a lot of transient you know, throttling. It, you know, they come up on a corner, they let off, they get back onto the corner, they need the response to be predictable and come back on. That's so exactly road right. Road racing is, is better than, say, drag racing. You're going to be continuously in boost. You'll shift, but you want that shift to be as quick as possible, and you don't want to lose boost anyway. You want to just keep going. Right. Yep, that's exactly right. IndyCar uh, has a lot of tip-in, tip-out, corner exit, you know, those kinds of things where you're, you're in transients uh, versus a drag car, you're wide open throttle, and, and uh, you, know, you wouldn't see much of if any benefit with a lighter weight rotor group. Now, is there any way I can like monitor how my turbo is doing, like how quick it's spinning? Yeah, so we kind of got off track a bit on the benefits of EFR, but one of them is um, one of the features for EFR is it has a provision for a speed sensor. So there's a, a machine surface on the compressor cover that has a hole that's blind, and there's just a little bit left uh, on that of material at the bottom of the hole. So if uh, an end user would like to monitor the speed, what they would do is remove the compressor cover from the turbo, take a quarter inch drill, finish drilling through that hole, deburr it, and then bolt a speed sensor on there, um, and then put the cover back on. And then there's aftermarket ECUs uh, can accept the signal from the speed sensor directly and process it. But uh, if you don't have an aftermarket ECU that can, or an aftermarket ECU at all. There's a, a turbo speed gauge that's on the market, and that is basically a tachometer. It's a little gauge pod. Like a 52 millimeter gauge? Yeah, um, the standard mm -hmm. diameter gauge. It's a tachometer and for your turbo. There you go, it's a tack for your turbo. And it has a couple of features on it. You can put it in a screen where you can plot the turbo speed over time, so you can watch it go up and down. You can tie in your map sensor and double it as a boost gauge and a turbo speed gauge. And then uh, it also can recall the time that you've spent over boosting, if at all, and then the maximum speed that, uh, that you've, you've occurred. So don't, don't take that as a challenge to try and, you know, get the maximum <laughs> speed compared to your buddies, but, <laughs> but uh, it's just a, it's a feature that you can add to the turbo. And some of the Airworks, uh, the SXE line of Airworks, they now have compressor covers that have provisions for turbo speed uh, sensors. Um, from what you described, the design and refinement of the EFR, it sounds like a speed sensor, exactly what you're saying. It's like a red line. Your turbo is designed with uh, a rev limit, and it sounds like it's far more critical on the EFR just because you have a bolted joint and less mass, so it would be easier to get it at higher RPMs if you're being negligent or, or not just not monitoring it. It's, it's in a black box. It's very easy to overspeed the turbo. I mean, like we talked about, it's better boost response, it's improved transient response, and that means when you get it to the top of the RPM range, it goes yeah, you can into overspeed much, much more easily than the others do. I mean, you can overspeed anything if you ask more of it, it's capable of providing. It's like kind of back to your original example, of where you, you turbocharge, 
your intake air yeah. becomes your boost air and it's a, a continuing cycle the turbo will try to keep up with that but it is that overspeed that will eventually lead to the better and any of them will do it but the efrs will do it quicker just because it is a lighter weight material and it's very easy to overspeed the turbo well and i've heard from some racers and i know this isn't everybody either because not everyone has crazy standalone ECUs in their cars but one of the Borg Warner sponsored drivers, Will Al Young, was actually controlling his boost while going up Pike's Peak by RPM, not necessarily by peak uh, boost. So yeah. that as he goes up elevation, and I'll let you describe this. because Well, if you're well within the operating range of the turbo, it's better to control it by the boost pressure that you want. But if you know that you, 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 you're just really reaching the kind of the ragged edge of what that turbo would do. And Pikes Peak at 14,000 feet, you know, you need a turbo that's, you know, several sizes larger than what you would at sea level or at normal altitude. So at that point, your turbo and its RPM range is really the limiting factor. So you want to do all that you can do. And that's why in those cases, it makes sense well, yeah, to so use the RPM range because you want all the turbos capable of, but you don't break. Well, yeah, and uh, I guess just to conceptualize that, when you're at 14,000 feet, your air is thinner, so you need to spin that turbo faster to ram as many right. of those air molecules in as you can to reach the pressure you're trying to achieve. So yeah, your wheel speed's gonna go up for any given boost pressure as you climb that mountain. And I thought that was fascinating the first time I heard that because that's not, most people, they're tuning for where they live and if they, even if they move to the coast from the mountains, they get retuned. John's Felix fuel injection, made everybody forget that with the carburetors, right? <laughs> right. They didn't have to tune for elevation anymore, right? Yeah. EFI, EFI is, is uh, it's a magical thing. I'm monitoring wheel speed. Is that kind of, is wheel speed kind of an indicator of how much power I'm making? My wheel speed's going up. Is my power going up? Not necessarily. You can reach a point where uh, there's diminishing returns. If you were to look at a compressor map, you would see curved lines, kind of like eyebrows that stack up, and those are shaft speeds. And the higher the speed, typically the higher the pressure ratio, but if you flow enough, the lines become vertical and it, it all kind of falls apart. You're off into really poor efficiency. So again, your efficiency is temperature, so it'd be a really, really hot charge. You're spinning it like crazy, but getting a hot charge and not much mass flow. I'm sorry, not much pressure ratio because it's dropped off. Okay, gotcha. So it's an indicator of where you are on the map, more so than power. You know what I mean? So I could have a turbo that's spinning slow versus fast, and depending on where I am on the map, I can make almost equivalent power. It kind of gets confusing. So the takeaway is turbo speed doesn't necessarily mean mass flow okay. or IE power. I mean, you've heard people refer to like a turbo falling on its face. When it's doing that, it's still giving you all the RPM it's gotten. If you were looking at your RPM gauge, your speed sensor output, you would see a lot of speed, but the turbo's really gone beyond that compressor stage's efficiency range. Like John said, you're operating out in an area where you're just making a lot of hot air and uh, the power numbers are not, not good. But so it, it, it is uh, an indicator of where you are on the map, but not a good idea about if you're making the most power that turbo can make. It's more about, is it matched again, like we said with Matchbot, and are you operating on the correct portion of that map based on all the other criteria? Your displacement, your altitude, as we talked about, and you've gotta be running that compressor stage um, where it does make good power. 
because you can take the speed all the way through that nice range of the map and be out here not doing any good and hurting the turbo, hurting the bearing system. So yeah, the speed is important. It's important to tell you where you're at on the map, but it's not, definitely not the only indicator there that's gonna tell you whether or not you're making the most power of that turbo's capability. So if I had a turbo and I, I put it on my car and we're on the dyno and we're making as much power as we can per the designated max wheel speed of the turbo. And I'm scared because we're, we're riding on that threshold. Can you reduce the wheel speed by changing the AR of the turbine housing? And I'm gonna follow that with a question that should be answered before, just for those listening. What exactly is the A over R on a turbine housing or a compressor cover? So that's the volume inside that turbine housing. It's, there's an equation it's really just the amount of volumetric space in that turbine housing or compressor cover. So if you increase that volume, would that reduce the speed of the shaft? At different points. I mean, you can take that turbine housing, even if you go really big with the AOR, let's say like an EFR from a 105 to a 145, you can eventually push enough exhaust volume through it to overspeed the turbo with the 145. But if you took the 105 off and put the 145 back on, all, all things being the same. It RPM would have slowed the turbo down. Okay. Again, you can run right through that. You can still overspeed yeah, it. But for a given RPM, it's going to take the 145 is, of course, going to respond slower than the 105. But it's also going to be capable of more power in the long run because you're using more of the exhaust energy. You're not having the wastegate. At the upper RPM range, you're always happier in a bigger A over R turbine house. Lower RPM range, it's going to come on quicker with a smaller A over R, but that same smaller A over R is going to act as a restriction on the upper RPM. Maybe we should step back a little bit. A over R, what does that stand for? It's, it's area over radius. So it's the cross-sectional area of the volute, and the volute is the gas passage within the housing. And then the radius between the center line of the turbo and the center of that area. So it's an indicator of sizing. And it gets a little bit confusing because you can have a S500 turbo with the same A over R as an S200 turbo. And you look at very different. Yeah, sizes. one's the size of a basketball, the other one's like, <laughs> you know, a softball kind of thing. Um, so it all boils down to a fee parameter. And back to MatchBot, if you look at the turbine sizing selector in MatchBot, it shows you how all those fee parameters stack up against the flows. So you can see where the S200 with a you know 10A over R versus a S500 with a 10A over R, where those actually compare as far as overall flow through that stage. That would take into consideration the wheel and the A over R. Okay, so you kind of need the whole system to really judge what you the whole system and the application of the vehicle you're putting it on to make an interpretation of what yeah, turbine housing that takes. Sure. Yeah, I would say it's maybe even a confusing question to ask, and it goes back to application, right? So if you think back to the the stationary gen set that John mentioned earlier, it's a non-wastegated engine that's very well matched to its turbocharger. Changing the turbine housing size would change the overall, say, rated power boost pressure or turbo speed. But in an application that you're probably referring to in a car where you have massive wastegates and you're probably bleeding off 50%. Most of the energy, yeah, 50 to 75% of the exhaust energy that's available, you're bleeding off and bypassing the turbine. Just changing A over R is probably not going to change the 
maximum speed or the maximum boost pressure at rated power, right? The A over R change will change uh, when it comes in on boost, right? Because you're controlling the turbocharger with the wastegate and your boost control methods, whatever they might be. And the change in the A over R on a turbine housing and an application like that is really only going to affect how well the engine breathes or how, uh, how efficient the engine works at rated power points, right? Because you're gonna have a freer flowing exhaust with a larger ARR. So you may have exactly the same speed, exactly the same boost pressure, but the engine will make more power because its exhaust is more freer flowing. So no. It, become, it will come on slower. Yeah. Right? But you know, the question was, could we reduce overall speed? And I think that the, the answer to that question, like I said, is a little confusing because you are controlling the overall speed and boost pressure yeah. with your boost control on your wastegates. The ARR of the turbine housing and the application we're talking about, say a high revving gasoline engine with heavy wastegating, the ARR is not anything in most cases, right? As far so, as maximum speed yeah. is. So I got a good example though. So you, you're familiar with this from the sport front wheel drive days. We had a guy a few years ago that did a lot of instrumentation on his turbo. He had wastegates, but he kept them slammed shut with CO2 pressure, you know, the whole time. But he did go from, we, on our S400s, we, we have a 0.9 A over R, and we have a 1.25 A over R. So there's a 1.0 and there's a 1.10 in the middle, but the, the 90 and the 125 are the bookends of that size. He kept them both, and he was just gonna see what he could do with both of them, because he, he also ran the car on the street and you ran the 90 on the street just because it comes in a lot quicker. You ran the 125 at the track because it makes more power. So again, he kept his wastegate shut so we can pretty much look at it as a non-wastegated application. And, and it's kind of back to what Kurt said, it's less restriction on the engine. So he did the, a couple of dyno runs on the car and he did it drag race passes as well. And the calculations there that he made was about 120 horsepower difference between the 90 and the 125. Now again, that one is definitely a good comparison because there's no wastegating, even though he had a wastegate, he kept the slam shut. The difference was the turbos being able to take full advantage of all that exhaust gas and that 90 is not acting as a restriction against the engine, running higher back pressure and causing the engine to have to work harder with more parasitic losses against that back pressure. Where the 125 was much more free flowing and allowed him to make more peak horsepower and a lot faster passive. Was it rough? I'm guessing it's the same boost levels. So In that application, it may be, you may end up with more or less, right, with non-waste gain. Yeah. Just I would say, at that, the bigger A over R, now he was making between 50 and 53 pounds of boost. But I would say with the 90, he was probably running a little closer to 53. On 425, he might have been running closer to 50 pounds of boost. Okay, but I mean, just hypothetically, I guess, um, all things left the same, he's shifting his, his torque in, in the RPM range later. He's not making any more torque, he's just moving it out and therefore making more horsepower. And when that engine's a full song, again, it's just that much less restriction and allowing it to make that much more power because of the change in the turbo stage. Yeah, you're shifting the whole, whole power band. <laughs> I was gonna say, I didn't want to get to the question I was gonna ask, because I feel like it'd be even more complicated, which would be- Oh, it's gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ask it anyway. I, well, I was going to say, if you, if you ran a smaller sized AR and then added larger wastegates, like to increase the flow, would you potentially theoretically be able to achieve the same horsepower with a, a basically faster spool? So with the small AR, you're after the spool and then you lead off the wastegate. 
you have a lot of mass flow through the wastegate because you got large wastegates. Right. You would potentially have quicker spool, yes, but then you could potentially fall off on power on the top end because now your exhaust gas restriction is going to be high. Okay. He's saying fix that with the wastegate. Let the wastegate take the body pressure off the engine. Yeah, it's, but then you start falling off on the turbine map right. because now you don't have much energy going through yeah. the turbine stage to drive it. Because then you do more wasting and you lose the benefit of turbocharging, which is capturing that energy and turning it into boost pressure. So is there a way to fix that? It'd be a fun project to do all that test work <laughs> that you're kind of theorizing right there. But I, I agree with, with both these guys' assessment that the bigger A over R allows that turbine stage to take advantage of that much more exhaust gas energy in the turbine stage. And I think you're always going to be better with the bigger A over R at the upper RPM range. If you try to mimic that with a smaller A over R and wastegate flow, you're losing shaft power or power in the turbine. But again, you could play with it. I'm sure there's ways you can optimize it. You might find that you can get some of that back, but I don't believe you'd get it all back because the turbine's gonna operate most efficiently by channeling more energy through it and the larger A over R turbine housings will allow you to do that. Another thing that you can change is the, the wheel size, the turbine wheel size. You can open that up and then it puts you in a, in a more favorable spot. So I was going to say, I was kind of ho hoping someone would say, yeah, so you fix it using twin scroll, but. Twin scroll is better for the bottom end, not the top end. I think maybe the problem is not well understood, at least by me, exactly, right? I mean, if we're running into, running into a situation where uh, a turbine housing size could make a big difference, then maybe the turbocharger match is wrong, right? It's so small that it's restricting the engine so heavily that you have to wastegate the gain more engine power back, then I think that the, you know, the turbocharger engine max needs to be looked at you know, from that perspective. Well, this example that I gave, certainly that engine is mismatched because again, that's class limited. You know, he's having to be in a 72 millimeter turbine where he should probably be in an 88 millimeter turbine to make those kind of power. So it is a mismatch application. So I'm gonna fire three questions at you all at <laughs> once. So very first one at its basic, you've already described what a, AR in a housing is. Now, is there any difference between an A over R of 0.8 and a single scroll versus a twin scroll? Are they any different other than the fact that one's divided? Are there any drawbacks to using one or the other? Is there any advantage? And then, of course, in the process, answering that, what is twin scroll and how does it work? Yes, yes, and I don't know. <laughs> that, uh, so your first question was uh, the A over R of 0.8 for a twin scroll versus an open volute. Um, again, it goes back to the equation of cross-sectional area or radius. So uh, the answer is no. You'll still have the same amount of cross-sectional flow area for those two. It's just you have a divided wall. What are the advantages and disadvantages on a twin scroll? What you're doing is you're you're feeding uh, the pressure pulsations from the firing order from the engine into alternate scrolls. So you have a, a front scroll and a back scroll or left and right. And um, your headers are plumbed such that when the engine pulses are going through, they're hitting one scroll and then the other and then the other and the other. So it's kind of like an impact wrench, you know, a pneumatic impact wrench versus a ratchet wrench where it has that hammering effect because you've got the pulses hitting the turbine wheel. So what that allows you to do is harvest more energy, especially at low firing frequencies or low engine speeds. And it helps 
to get the transient response on the low side. Now there's a disadvantage for a twin scroll, and that is typically the turbine efficiency. If you were to map those two turbine housings back to back, an open volute versus a twin scroll, the open volute is gonna be more efficient because it doesn't have that divider wall separating the flow right onto the turbine. So this is now circling back, which is where I was gonna say, on your single scroll application, when you're talking that 98 A over R versus the 125, I've heard of some of the super guys using a spool valve where they use a twin scroll housing and a single scroll header and they will close off half. So if you had a 125 housing, you could cut that in half and use one scroll and at a certain point, open it up. And if I remember right, I think uh, there was a brief instance where EFR toyed with that. What's your opinion of that strategy? Yeah, it definitely works and definitely makes a difference, right? Because you've you've basically made a variable turbine stage with one volute half uh, blocked off. You've essentially cut the turbine housing area in half, right? So that its its flow curve uh, is much lower, and so it will come on faster. And then when you open it up, you've basically doubled it. So, like I said, it's a, a very simplistic way of having a, a variable geometry turbine housing. And yeah, it definitely works. Definitely makes a a big difference. There are drawbacks to it. Like you mentioned, um, we, we did in fact boil with the idea of releasing a product similar to that in the EFR. We called it uh, BTV, yeah, BTV, Variable Turbine Volute. And uh, yeah, it, it certainly worked and was, um, was a viable project, but it needed quite a bit of work before we could truly release it, I think, to the uh, kind of the general public, right? I mean, it had uh, it definitely worked well and would work very well in some applications, but others it needed more uh, more refinement. And uh, you know, at the time, we had bigger fish to fry, I think. And so it uh, kind of fell by the wayside for us, for EFR at least, yeah. And that, what, what year was that? 2015? Mm. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in there. I, I, there. Thought, I thought that was at PRI or SEMA or something. Yeah, we it was at one of the trade shows. I thought that was a cool thing. I was going to try and make one in my car. Lots of people are using like throttle bodies and cutting them up and making wild stuff online. Your car isn't set twin scroll. The race car, as it currently sits, is a single scroll header on a twin scroll yeah. turbo because I wanted to put a scroll. So box. yours would work that way. And yeah. now I want to switch it to this twin scroll. Kind of bike to your twin scroll issue, and you'll see this in Matchbot. We've talked about Matchbot a few times. If you look at turbine efficiency, there's a little blue dot beside each one of these required inputs that has a question mark in it. If you go there, it kind of pops up a little dialog box that gives you some suggestions. And in that case, it says that uh, the twin scroll provides 15 or 10 to 15% increase in the initial boost response and transient response. So it's quite an increase. Again, it's lower end, but if you use a divided manifold and a twin scroll turbine housing, you can expect that 10 to 15% increase in initial boost response and transient response. So twin scroll application wise, I'm most likely going to use a twin scroll during a streetcar application. Yeah. yeah. If you put on like stage and launch at motorsports, drag race or tractor pull, uh, typically you would be better off with open flow and a, an open header system, all except for it's just going to be a little bit more difficult to stage. But to John's point, an open flow, a non-divided turbine housing is going to hit a higher peak efficiency. And if you're not dividing the manifold, like in your case, you have a non-divided manifold, it's really just a flow blockage to have that division in there. It's not, there's no benefit to it. 
It's just a minute. What about in a twin scroll application? Is there a time when you, uh, or I guess it's the standard that you would have a, an equal length twin scroll application. Are there ever times when it's appropriate or is it even possible to have a non-equal length runner to a, to a twin scroll turbo? Yeah, you get into packaging concerns or not concerns, but uh, limitations, limitations that you can't get there. Will you get 100% of the benefits? No, but the benefits still are there. Mm -hmm. So you might get 7 or 8% as opposed to 10 to 15 or 20. Okay, so even in, in an undivided uh, or a, a non-equal length application, it would still be more beneficial on a streetcar per se over an open in the yeah. In the mid to lower RPM range, the uh, divided manifold is going to be superior. So again, you're kind of looking at those two things. What am I doing with this car? Am I you know, taking it to the track for drag racing or my close course road racing and your road race application? I prefer to have the divided manifold in the drag race or the tractor pull. I prefer to have open. And that's, that's independent as well too though. You know, I mean, we can't swear to how the engine's built, but I have, I have seen data on twin scroll applications at very high RPM where it was, where it was more efficient or the engine made more power with the twin scroll manifold and header, but it, it limited reversion back from the cylinders, right? It not only kept those pulses separated all the way to the turbine wheel, but at very high RPM, it also helped engine performance as well. So, you know, I, I can't say that that's for every engine, but I have seen data at high engine speed, twin scroll is, is better also. <laughs> so it depends. It's, you know, it's a very loaded question, I think. And I think in most all turbocharger related questions, uh, not maybe not loaded, but, uh, you know, they always require you to dig a little deeper. Right? I mean, we don't have all the answers, that's for certain. So potentially at higher RPM, it helps the pulses separate enough to where it actually increases flow. Correct, yeah. Uh, but yeah. like, if like a four cylinder you're doing, say, one and three and two and four together. Yeah. I think it's one and four and two and three. Yeah, whatever it is. So what do you do if you have five? Yeah, I've got a guy that's dealing with that right now. <laughs> And he's not decided to, to do a fully divided manifold. We've argued with him some. I think there still would be some benefit there, but it is difficult. So, so what would be the difference then between a dual volute and a twin scroll? So the dual volute, there are two tongues. One volute wraps 180 away from the other one. So they're pushing on the turbine wheel 180 degrees apart, the pulses, versus a twin scroll that would push at the same location but divided. Right. And on a dual volute, remember how I said on a twin scroll, you've got the divider wall and now not all the flow goes straight up to the turbine wheel. On dual volute, you don't have that. The flow onto the wheel is, is not separated. Okay. So, so yeah, full width, I guess, full only width. effective. What you call it? The turbine. We call it the F, F tip, which is the height of the blade. Your own tip, yeah. So how, how come no one's done that in Africa? Well, it's definitely not new. I was looking it up that like Lord Warner came out with it in like the 80s. It's actually it's really actually much older than that. Yeah, really? It's dual, a dual volute or, or a nozzle ringed turbine with two entries and two tongues has been around since the 1950s in the diesel market, right? Twin scroll or what we call twin flow BTF uh, has been around since near, almost nearly as long in the diesel market, right? And it's just now seeming to be new technology, right? Because it's being applied to the gasoline application, right? Where it is definitely a new challenge, right? Because we have much higher temperatures, but the uh, concept and the, the turbine housing design has been around as long as turbochargers have been. 
I know it's not used especially, like I mentioned, in aftermarket, but when we're talking about rotor stability, is one better than the other? I can imagine a dual volute, if you're pumping 180 degrees across the wheel, you're kind of beating the shaft back and forth uh, against the bearing housing. At, at least that's how I would conceptualize it, while a twin scroll would just be putting a force in on one location so the rotor would kind of stabilize wherever it wanted. Yeah, I would say both technologies have their challenges, right? And by the time they get to the aftermarket, it wouldn't be anything for the customer to be concerned with, really, you know, as far as bearing stability or rotor dynamics is concerned. But yeah, there's, a, I think they both have their challenges and whether they're equal or greater for one or the other, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, I guess it would depend on application. Maybe that'll be the next thing we see in the aftermarket is a dual volute turbo of some sort. Yeah. Um, what, what do you guys think is coming in the aftermarket here in, I don't know, the near future in the next five years? We don't want to give up our secrets, you know. Electrification is a hot topic. Uh, we, we have an e-booster and e-turbo, but that's, that's just now going to OEs. And uh, it'll be quite some time, if ever, that uh, you'll, you'll start seeing that the aftermarket. We get that question quite a bit. You know, people come to the trade shows and say, hey, I, I saw Ford Warner makes an e-turbo. I want one for my small block Chevy. Yep. You know, and uh, they're not that far along yet. And unfortunately, it needs, it needs an OE to help bring it along, to pay for the tooling and the development and the research to bring it to market. And the OEs, once they make that investment, they're going to want to own all the rights to it and the tooling and the software that's associated with it and, 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 and. For those reasons and others, it'll be a while before that comes down. I hope I'm completely wrong and then SEMA, you know, 2025 will have e-booster or e-turbo. Oh, yeah. no, fair, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, we already have Bluetooth drive, so yeah. <laughs> oh, the world is coming along. You don't even need The question, I, this might be my uh, lack of information. Are there turbochargers for like the ones with electronic wastegates? Oh yeah, yep. Oh yeah. And uh, see, I haven't been in the market long enough. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. Yep, TurboSmart has uh, an electric wastegate they rolled out this past year. It's like it's a electric motor that drives a, a poppet valve that opens and closes, and I believe it has position feedback as well. And some of the OEs they have electric wastegates that. Uh, do those same functions that opens up the controllability quite a bit because you can imagine now you can no longer tied to a co2 or boost pressure to to drive the wastegate now you can command it into any position you want it at the time and there's definitely benefits for that i was gonna say i know that like this all the civics and type r's all have electronic wastegates i didn't know there was already aftermarket for that they're on top of it that was yeah. this year's release right yeah that was the new hot thing at sema I didn't walk around uh, enough, apparently. Uh, I know, <laughs> at the EFR, or the Ford Warner booth the whole time, talking about the shaft and wheels for three hours. And there's and there's several guys out there, you know, today using these OE applications, electronic wastegates, and guys are outfitting them to their to their own race cars and, uh, and, and implementing their own control, you know, obviously having really great success with it, you know, as you would expect. So, yeah, I would say uh, that's a good point. That's something that's really not... Uh, made its way into the aftermarket very well yet, right? It, we're a little, we're a little removed, even if we uh, are well connected to the aftermarket here in Fort Warner, right? We, we 
we see things that we're working on that are five, 10 years out before the aftermarket starts to see them, or in some cases, even further. So yeah, maybe maybe that's a good question for you guys to be, you know, what would you like to see come to the aftermarket? Maybe that's a more uh, more pointed question for us. Maybe that's a better question for the audience, I guess. Right. I, probably. I mean, I, I would love to have an e-turbo, but I also know there's, I guess, the, the balance between having a load cell and adding all this electronics into your car and having a turbo that you just get them to boost and leave it there. And that's where I don't know. In my application, do I need the spool over the, uh, with the weight penalty or do I just leave it with the traditional system? And, and that, that's, that's an equation I'm not sure anyone knows right now because no one has built both or, or switched their car over to see the differences um, from, from, I guess, a grassroots racing aspect. I know Formula One had used e-turbo for, for a while. I think it was Magneti Morelli that did that one. And that's, that's its own bizarre thing. So they know, sure. but that's also on a much larger budget than the average racer is going to have. So that's we're going to be... We're going to be patching together like a golf cart with a bunch of car batteries in the trunk. And I'm not sure racing wise, that's, that's worth the weight at this point. 48 volts of lead acid. Yeah. Just in the trunk, not secured, just throw them in there. Yeah. I, say, yeah, I, I think e-turbos for racing applications seem a little far in the future for anyone. Cause no one's putting a 48 volt system in their car anytime soon. Yeah. I would, I would probably agree with that statement. Yeah, I think that we've covered pretty much everything that we wanted to talk with you guys about. And I appreciate you guys coming on. Yeah. Well, anything we can do to confuse the general public. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, the podcast is about uh, addressing any confusion on the internet. So putting a little bit more out there always helps stir the pot. Yeah. Well, thanks for having us. uh, Yeah, it's it's been enjoyable. It's kind of strange to think that I'm a, I'm the least experienced here. I mean, I think you've got over 65 years of experience sitting around this table with just three guys. It's hard to believe. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you guys have been in the industry a long time, longer than I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate your time, guys. Oh,